Every day we're reminded that we are in the driver's seat. Every day we're reminded that we can co-create beauty and wonder on this planet. And so the question is, why don't we create a world that actually is more wonderful because we were here than actually depleted because we are, we're here? Hello there. Welcome to Farm On, the podcast. I'm Joe Phillips. And today my conversation is with the very eloquent Bill Wilson, who is the co-founder, co-teacher at Midwest Permaculture. And I was so fortunate to be able to go down to Stell, Illinois, the headquarters of Midwest Permaculture, and spend a week soaking it all in like a big old sponge, just soaking in the information. And alongside about 16 or so other students, And we just soaked it in and Bill talked and we listened. And when he talked, it was like music to my ears. Um, And I think I was just ready. I was ready to uh, look at the world in a different way. But maybe I didn't even know it at the time. I think I thought that I was going down there to just learn how to design gardens and be kind of a glorified landscape designer. What I didn't realize is that I was going there to learn how to redesign my life and the world around me. But anyway, Bill's been living the permaculture uh, life for a while now, but he's also had a lot of twists and turns in his own journey, and he talks about those in this next uh, conversation. Um, So I'm going to kick it all off with... um, turning the tables a little bit because one of the assignments that we were given during the training was to um, turn to our partner next to us and ask each other what is permaculture now if you ask a permaculture designer that question you're going to get many different answers depending on who you ask and that's because the nature of permaculture is the nature of everything and so you can just talk and talk and talk So, again, I'm turning the tables on Bill to ask him to kick off our little conversation. Hey, Bill, what is permaculture? Oh, boy, that is turning the tables. (laughs) Well, um, the way I like to describe permaculture is it's an umbrella word for all things sustainable. I think many of us over the last 20, 30, 40 years have been in part of the screen movement. We're interested in different aspects of sustainability, whether it be energy or food or um, natural building, um, right livelihood is part of that, you know, finding work that is meaningful to, to us. And, um, and this thing permaculture came along, it was actually the term was coined by Bill Mollison out of Australia around uh, the early, uh, late, late 1970s, early 80s. And um, what it was was an attempt to uh, encapsulate all of that and look at how we can create a life on this planet as humans that actually addresses um, the biggest concerns. It's really a response to the biggest concerns we're seeing of industrial society where we have all these wonderful benefits of the uh, uh, excess of abundance and and, uh, energy. And there's really nothing wrong with those things. But when it does damage the planet and when we take advantage of other people to do it and when we become unconscious of the fact that we've become, instead of people, we've become consumers, well, then it's it's really, it's something that has gone amok. 
So permaculture is asking the deeper question. It's asking, you know, what is how how what is and how do things really work? Those are the the two big questions it asks, and it and it's it's uh, predicated on the proposition that we as humans are creative beings. You know, I don't know if we were created in the image and likeness of the creator, but if we were, it means we are creative beings. And I think most people will agree we have the ability to think and we have the ability to create. And so the question is, why don't we create a world that actually is more wonderful because we were here than actually depleted because we are, we're here? As a kid, I was a, a Boy Scout, and when we went camping and we went into a campground or a campsite, our scoutmaster would have us look around and said, boys, I want you to take a good look at this campsite because when we leave on Sunday afternoon, we're going to leave this campsite in better condition than when we arrived. And permaculture invites us to do that as every generation of humans shows up on the planet. What if that was one of the things we were all told? You know, enjoy the planet, enjoy life, enjoy living this wonderful experience. But be sure when you're done, you've left it in better condition than when you arrived. And if every generation had been doing that for the last, you know, hundreds of years, we'd pretty much be living in utopia today. Bill, I'm hearing your hopeful message, but I'm just wondering, do you think that humans are innately destructive or creative beings? I think that's one of the things that makes our permaculture course probably unique to maybe many others, certainly not all, but um, it's just that reminder. Really, I think what the permaculture course does is it confirms what we innately know about ourselves you know, we, we are, you know, we're everything. I mean, we, we it's, I, I, I tell the story in the course, you know, of the, the older Indian, the grandfather talking to his grandson and talking about how there are two wolves in everybody. It's, there's the wolf of anger and frustration and hate and, and violence. And then there's also the wolf of love and care and, and create creativity. And, uh, and that this is constant battle that goes on inside of every person. And, the little boy gets quiet, and finally he asks his grandfather, he says, well, grandfather, which, which wolf wins? And the grandfather said, it's the one you feed, son. It's the one you feed. So that's in all of us. I mean, there's destructive aspects to all of us, you know, and there's, uh, you know, cruelty and self-centeredness, and those are all things that are part of the culture, too. But we're also this other thing. And... Uh, you know, it's just really a choice, isn't it? I mean, we may live in a culture that's mostly unconscious, but that's the thing that most people who show up at a permaculture course, somehow they they stepped out of the box a little bit, you know, or they took that pill, whatever it was, you know, in the, the matrix, you know, they, they asked the question, well, how does this stuff work? Or isn't there more to life than what I'm seeing around me? And so when people come and take this course, it's because it's eight days, every day we're reminded that we are in the driver's seat. Every day we're reminded that we can co-create beauty and wonder on this planet. And then the course shows us how to do it. So it's... Uh, right. And is that what you meant by right livelihood? Oh, I'm sure I just picked it up in the culture like everybody else. There is the right livelihood award that uh, has been offered for, I think, the last 20-some years. Um but it's one of those things, I think a lot of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, where we saw, you know, our parents plugging in and just getting jobs and just going to work every day and, 
And many of us said, boy, that doesn't look like living. That looks kind of almost a little bit like slavery. Uh, of course, it's a million times better than slavery, but it's, um, it still asks the question, did I show up on this planet just so I could plug into a job somewhere to get a paycheck? Is, there's, there's got to be more to life. And that's just something that came to me as a, as a youngster in my early 20s. And um, so anyway, I listened to that. You know, I listened to that inner thing inside of me that just said, you know, if you get a job, take a job, learn from it, get the experience, but um, don't, don't think you're going to stay there. I just, I just, it's just, I don't know, it's just not, just wasn't for me. I had maybe a dozen different businesses from the time I was 20 to the time I was 40. And, um, and when you work for yourself, you're working all the time. It's, you know, it's, you know what it is. You're always creating and thinking and problem solving. It means you have to create everything. And uh, so there's a lot, there's an awful lot of work that goes with that. And and so it was for me, too. And I had some successes, but I also had some failures. And I think those were the things that any time that I had failed, I always started again and came back and was able to pull something together. So it gave me an inner knowing that the end is never the end. And losing everything isn't necessarily losing everything. It's losing everything at this moment. And it gave Becky and I a certain bit of courage and resiliency that maybe a lot of people don't have. And so when permaculture showed up in our life, when I was, I think I was 53, when we started um, looking at permaculture in a serious way, um, it wasn't that scary for us to start Midwest permaculture. It just felt like a natural extension of who we were as people. All right. Well, speaking of losing everything isn't really losing everything. You've got to tell the cabin story again, if you <laughs> don't mind. Yeah, I, li- I, 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 I lived in Montana for four years. And um, uh, while I was there, I got married and started my business. And two years into that, um, you know, you meet the, uh, the woman of your dreams and you start your own business. And in two, two and a half years, both of those uh, had, had failed, basically. They had f- fallen apart, yeah. And it was a real shock to me because, um, you know, I was pretty devoted and committed to them, but I didn't know very much. And I was living a... You know, kind of living the life that, uh, I mean, living um, with these ideas that come from childhood and and uh, they weren't necessarily anchored in reality. These fantasies about the way things should be and, and uh, the way things should turn out. And so consequently, you know, the relationship that I had wasn't very deep. It was pretty um, superficial. It was wonderful, but it was superficial for both of us. So fortunately, we left separated amicably. It wasn't, and we didn't have children or a lot of assets or anything. So it wasn't this terrible thing. But it still was a deep surprise to me that, my gosh, how could that? How could this not be? How could this? How could it not work? And so in that sense of feeling confused and lost, I had a friend that had a cabin, and, and uh, I asked Scott if I could just borrow his cabin for a while. I had read a book recently called Siddhartha. So I would say that I've always been interested in the metaphysical or spiritual side of the human experience, and there's never been one discipline that's really pulled me in, but I've looked at dozens of disciplines, and so it's been this recurring thought, you know, this recurring in, in inquiry. But uh, in this case, um, I just knew that I needed to think deeply about who I was in my life and what life meant. And I needed to just meditate. So I said, Scott, I'm going to go up to that cabin. I said, I'll probably be there for several months. I'm not leaving until I figure out the meaning of life. And he said, well, Bill, you're welcome to it. Here's the key. But just remember, it's a, 
you know, it's not a you know a year-round cabin. It's more a summer cabin. And I said, Scott, you know, I was a, I'm a Boy Scout. You know, I know how to build a fire. I, you know, there was a um, a cook stove, not a wood-burning stove, but a cook stove. And you know, those cook stoves are made so that the surface stays hot, but not the whole structure because you you don't want to drive yourself out of the kitchen in the summertime. But I hadn't thought that through. And I get to the cabin, I find out what a summer cabin is. Is when they side the cabin with knotty pine and the hole falls out of the knot, you can actually see outside. And of course, it's January, I snowshoed in. I mean, I, I drove my car as far as I could, and then I snowshoed in. And um, so now it's about 10, 15 below zero, and I can't get the cabin above freezing. And three days later, I realized I cannot stay there. I'm just in survival. There's no meditating going on. There's just, how do I keep warm? And um, so I realized I would have to leave, and and then I realized that I had failed again. You know, here I am failing again, and I just think it's a, a, a indicative of many of most humans is that when you get to that point where life is really a struggle or confusing, it's natural to want to sit down and and think about how does this thing really work. And so, uh, so anyway, it just in my in my sense of feeling like I had failed again, I remember really feeling a sense of worthlessness. And uh, on that third night, knowing I would leave the next day, and and really, um, I just I just I ached for there to be to to, to know. I ached. I was tired of of being confused and lost. And I remember just weeping, just letting go, letting it go, and just really feeling that sense of worthlessness and loss. But in the quietness of it, I, I realized I really didn't know anything. And um, I didn't really know, you know, if there was a God. I really didn't know what life was about. I really didn't know if there was such a thing as, you know, different dimensions in time. And, you know, I just I just realized I, you know, pretty much my life and all of my thoughts and beliefs had came come from my culture. You know, what if I'd grown up in India or China or something? Well, I'd have a whole different set of ideas and beliefs. And I realized that my ideas and beliefs were based on my lifetime, I mean, my exposure to my culture, and that I personally didn't really know anything. And that was a pretty profound moment because then I realized, well, I'm not stupid, and other people have figured it out. So I made a commitment to myself. I don't care where it takes me. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to figure out the meaning of life. I mean, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to figure out what this thing is about, and I'm just not going to quit until I until I do. And so that left the cabin uh, with a with a with a brighter heart and the willingness to follow my intuition and my gut and to f- and to figure this thing out and that's been my journey since I was 20 22 or 23 and you also became a truck driver at some point yeah well that's when um, you know from the time I was 20 to the time I was 40 I had a dozen businesses and a few jobs and at age 40 I you know now I had uh, you know one child and and um, and Becky had you know, we had two other children from a previous marriage so we had three boys and and um, and I was just working all the time, and, and I still hadn't gotten very far on understanding life. I understand a, a lot of things about life, what wasn't, but I still didn't have a lot of answers, just uh, a lot of work. And so I, I needed somebody to pay me. I needed to make a living, but I needed someone to pay me just to, to just sit and think. 
And uh, I went to the want ads and, you know, there's nobody hiring anybody just to sit and think, you know, it's just like you have to do things. But in the in the uh, work that I had done and the businesses I'd created, um, I talked to uh, some of the uh, truckers that I had gotten to know. And I knew that um, that's really what I what I wanted to do. I wanted uh, I could drive a truck in the middle of the night, get it from point A to point B, and then there's nobody telling me what to do. There's no clients I have to reach. There's no business planning. It's just do the job and have quiet time. And so I came home and I told Becky, I'm going to get my CDL license and drive a truck. And she just said, well, you have officially gone off the deep end. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and I just and I told her the story. I told her I said I just need time to think. She says, "Well, I think you're right. You do, but um, please be happy. You know, get a good job and be happy. Um, be home with us. You know, when you can." So she supported me, and I ended up getting a great job where I was actually gone three and a half days a week. And legally, you can't drive more than sixty hours a week. And so I would be home Thursday afternoon, and I have the rest of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'll oh, start at midnight on Sunday. So I took the truck. I got a decent sound system, and um, books on tape became my best friend. You know, and that was back in the days when actually when they were on cassette, and they would mail them to you, and you would plug the cassettes in. And and um, so I read a lot of books just driving down the road. And anytime something came along that was particularly interesting, you know, you can just press stop and think about that thought. And I, you know, did a lot of meditating, a lot of, I mean, safely, you know, but um, you can really get lost in your thoughts while you're driving and driving safely. I did miss my exit a few times, you know, I'm supposed to stop and deliver some freight or drop off a trailer or something. And I'm so involved in my, my retrospection that uh, I missed my exit a few times. But it was really a godsend for me because uh, it was being able to spend hours and hours and hours and thinking that it was, I was age 50 when I finally pieced it all together for myself to the point where uh, the anxiousness went away. All right, Bill. So now the big revelation. What was the answer that you found while you were driving that truck? It's not that complicated, really. It, it just kind of like permaculture is not that complicated. But uh, it really started when I was more like 49. And I think you probably remember this. I think I shared this. There was a lot of anxiousness around me needing to know and I was on this quest to find out. And so there I was from the time I was 22 or 3 till I'm 49, and I still haven't. I mean, I've made progress, and i figured some stuff out, but it, I didn't have the answer. And, um, and I was pretty anxious about the fact that I'm 49 years old, and I still haven't been able to figure this out. And so there was one of those Zen moment, moments. I mean, I've you know studied Zen Buddhism, and I've studied Christianity, and I've studied a lot of the great um, mystics, you know, some of the writers from hundreds of years ago. And I realized that um, when you're pursuing something with this doggedness, with a sense of anxiousness, you actually are pushing it away. And, um, and I had to ask myself, why do I need to know? You know, maybe I'll never know. But why do I need to know? I still can wake up every day. I still can show up and be present in the world. I still can show up and be of service in the world. There's nothing that says I have to know. And, uh, and so I made peace with that. You know, that's that quiet moment where you just say, I'm okay now. I'm okay not knowing, but I still can live each day as consciously and as aware as possible. Mm-hmm. And so was it as simple as just saying, I don't know? 
Well, there, that brought some uh, that brought that brought some peace for me. But then, what was interesting is I ended up working with, um, uh, as it turned out, it was a, a shaman. Um, and uh, I mean, I you know spent some time you know thinking deeply and and uh, working with uh, a couple of different shamans. It's just it, I wasn't looking for shamans, and I did, but that's who they are. Yeah, one of them did call themselves a shaman. The other one, she would deny it. You know, she was deep, deeply intuitive, right? And somebody who somehow is connected to uh, the human experience in space and time. She has an awareness about her that goes transcends this lifetime, this incarnation, or if you will, or this period of time. There's a knowing, and, and she's very um, subtle about it, and she's not at all for, um, but there's, there's a, there's, she has this way of knowing. And so I, you know, engaged with her and worked with her, and. And uh, in the process of telling her, um, this, you know, I worked with two others as well, but it, it was she that was the one where I, I told her about my story when I got together. I worked with her several times, and I told her that I had made peace with the fact that I don't need to know anymore what my life's work is, that I'm willing to just show up and be of service. And she kind of smiled. She says, well, that's great. She says, that was, that was the lesson you needed to learn. But she says, the answer's right here, right now, if you want it. The answer for what your work is is right here. It's in the room right now. But then she's sitting there with this little kind of an impish smile. She says, but it is right here, and you actually do know what it is. You're just not allowing yourself to see it. And I, and I even told her, I said, look, I, you know, I understand that's probably true, but um, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is, and um, but I don't need to know. She says, well, it's right here. Let's just do it right now. Let's figure it out. I said, well, I know. She says, shut up. We're just going to do this, you know. And so uh, she basically worked on some word phrases, and, um, and uh, probably within 10 minutes, we'd kind of work some things out. She says, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What does it look like? Whatever. And a phrase appeared on the page as, as I'm writing all these different things down. And it said, you are an ambassador for what is possible in the future. You are an ambassador for what is possible in the future. And this, of course, is a, is a positive future. Now, I, I know that doesn't sound like much to most people, but to me, those were the words that I needed to hear for it to really sink in and for me to absolutely know that that is exactly who I am. I, too, I think many of us, Probably, I think the human experience is more than just this, this 80, 90 year thing that most of us uh, experience. I think we've probably lived many lives before. I, I don't know if reincarnation is true, you know what? I don't even care. But I have this sense that many of us are showing up on this planet. We've actually lived other places before, or we are from other places. I really feel like millions of us have showed up on the planet. I'm not the only one that has this life's work, but millions of us have showed up to usher in this dawning of the age of Aquarius, if you will, from the 60s. But there is a new experience. It's time for, the, for humans to step into a grander experience of themselves. 
You know, and I think a lot of the great spiritual teachers came to prepare us for this time when we as humans need to step into this great, we need to grow up. It's time for us to become adults. We've been like junior high school kids where we're just partying all the time and the door's open and the heater's on and the TV's going and we're drinking the booze. And and so life is inviting us to step into a grander experience of ourselves. And I think millions of us have showed up to be a part of that. And I'm one of those millions. And so, um, and so, but when I heard that word, I'm ambassador for what's possible in the future, it means I'm just supposed to give voice to the fact that we have the ability to create beauty and wonder on the planet. And then two years later, I run into permaculture. And then here it is. This was the tool. This was the, this is the way that I can show up as an ambassador. And I think why I'm such a passionate permaculture teacher is that it was the, it's the substance. It was the tool I'm able to use to explain how do we create beauty and wonder on this planet. And when I took that permaculture course, there were all the elements. There's the pieces. Here's how to create security, abundance, repair the planet, you know, um, uh, how to work cooperatively together, the invisible structures. It was all there. And I just turned to Becky and I said, this is it. This is the piece I've been waiting for. So, so for me to be able to do this work after spending 30 years looking for it, it is just not that much work. It is such an honor to be able to talk about permaculture and to find people that are willing to spend a week with us and uh, let me share my passion for this stuff. And, uh, and then confirm in those who show up that they're not crazy either, that this is the real deal. We really can do this thing. Yeah, I'm now thinking of the uh, guiding question that permaculture asks, you know, uh, what is it and how does it work? And uh, to me, and when I took the training, I, it just seemed like the question was really saying, can you see clearly what's going on? Can you really see clearly the reality of what's going on and, and how, how can you clearly change things? Yeah, I think you're right. I think most, <clears throat> most people are... Um, just not awake. They're just not awake. And um, <clears throat> and as a result, they're at the effect of their entire life. You know, life is this constant process where they're, you know, out of control and there's all these emotions and uh, all this drama oftentimes that goes with it and the struggle to get ahead and, and you know, get, make it happen. And then even when people get ahead and all of a sudden they do have some level of security and abundance, it's oftentimes it's never enough. And so they need more and uh, oftentimes relationships fall apart. And, you know, it just it's just struggle after struggle. And, um, you know, there's just got to be more to life than that. And, uh and I think that's where uh, many of us who uh, step into permaculture have made that come to that conclusion. We just said, there's got to be more than this. And uh, we start looking at, you know, what does it mean to live a little more authentically, a little more simply? That's one of the things we keep coming to is how do I just cut my costs to the point where I can live well and spend time with my loved ones and enjoy life? And and that's what permaculture shows us how to do as well. Sure, it shows us how to do it, but not in a dogmatic way. Well, it's it's what's beautiful about permaculture it was set up uh, intentionally. It was designed having not having all the answers, but rather saying it is a design process. And uh, even Mollison and certainly Holmgren would agree that you know whatever that was created and initially launched out into the world is saying this is what permaculture looks like 
to us today. Bill said this is going to evolve, and, and you, the next generation, need to take this and move it forward and move it on. And so um, we've embraced that. And for Becky and I, you know, we just looked at permaculture. We, were, we took a pretty traditional permaculture design course, and we could. The brilliance is there. It's in there. But even my teacher was asleep, and he really didn't have this. Uh, in my opinion, you know, he didn't have this deeper awareness about how people really work, and uh, was missing some of the real gems. And so when Becky and I embraced it, we were able to pick it up and and. Uh, lay those pieces and emphasize the 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 brilliance behind it um, so there are some teachers that can and do and do that and there are those that don't and so it's uh, it's it's evolving and I'm sure there's some some more traditional teachers that would look the way that Becky and I teach and say oh that's not even permaculture you know they're just touching some philosophical mumbo-jumbo you know and so I don't know, um, but all I can tell you is uh, we honor the curriculum. We cover everything about you know water and plants and soils, and and um, it's a pretty pretty uh, amazing training that we're able to provide because we've really gone to we ask the question when we look at every segment of the design course curriculum, what's the juice, what's the point, why do we why are we even going to talk why about this? Why do we even talk thing? about it? Right, exactly. And do you feel like the Permaculture as a design process is rigid, or I think it's not supposed to be. That's correct. I think there are some people who do make it that way, yeah. But I don't think that's the intention. It's 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 really an open book. This is the early early days. I can, oh God, I wish I could just step two hundred years into the future and see how has permaculture showed up and how is it manifesting in the world. Oh, that's really great to hear. You know, I I feel like uh, a lot of people, myself included, are kind of uh, uh, maybe obsessed with this sort of apocalyptic. Uh, outlook that we have on the future right now but um how do you sort of maintain this kind of optimism and it's, does permaculture help you to do that well you know even in the course remember we uh like we show the film of the megalaya and the um how they build those um those living bridges that will last for hundreds of years and um and other kinds of natural buildings that have survived 300 400 500 years and Nobody's had a mortgage for 500 years. You know, it's, I mean, it's just that kind of thinking. What if we were to design our culture so that, you know, when you and I build our houses, they're going to be there 300 years from now. And, and all of our successive generations never have to have a mortgage again. And if the house is built, built well, the energy demands are very small. And if there's a little bit of land around there, we've got it set up on a perennial system and some annual systems in there, then the food could be done just very part-time, but it could provide that basic security net of, of uh, having enough to eat. Well, all of a sudden, nobody needs to have that forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year job. You don't have to have it. You can have it if you want it, but you don't have to have it. Well, just imagine if, you know, everybody, if you came into a culture and part of your culture was that right from the very beginning, you know, well, this is the culture, this is how we live. You will always have a house. You will always have us. You always have shelter. You always have food. You always have heat in the winter, right? So what else do you want to do? Now, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, that's really, I think, the way it's intended to be. I mean, but, but no, we have to, each one, of, each one of us now has to recreate from the beginning. We have to create this foundation for ourselves and hopefully for future generations. 
but uh, but that's the task before us. I mean, that's what we stepped into. We also get this incredible benefit of living in a time when there's just this incredible amount of abundance, at least for those of us who live in the in the lucky cultures. Can we can we take that abundance and can we? realize the gift that it is and become a little more humble about how we use it and then figure out a way to right. make life better for others. Right. I've heard you actually say that a permaculturist uh, could be dropped out of the sky and dropped into any barren environment and they would be able to create a supportive ecosystem. So how does that work again? It's just design. It's really there. It's around us. Pretty much, we can create security and abundance wherever we're at on the planet. You know, to the extremes are really rough. You know, you get away up there in, you know, the North Pole and the South Pole. I mean, that it's you know that's pretty pretty bizarre. But most places on the planet, it's possible to create a level of security and abundance. And that's the uh, that's the art of just learning how to observe and and becoming kind of working with nature, working with what's there. But it takes a lot of humility, a lot of patience. And it does take skill, and a lot of these skills, we actually lost all these skills. You know, we as uh, the Western world, we don't know how to grow food. We don't know how to build houses. We don't know how to keep ourselves warm in the wintertime. We, we just, we've lost those skills. We've even lost some of our skills of compassion, I think, our ability to communicate well. And um, so we, we have a lot to learn, And um, but it's all learnable. You have some beautiful earth earth dwellings on your land there um, at Stell, Illinois. Can you describe those? Yeah, we just we wanted to create an area. We have this 8.7 acres, and we wanted to create, uh, demonstrate different kinds of growing uh, methods as well as different kinds of uh, structures that one could live in. And um, so we're building our structures. And so it's, it's, it's a, um, we're calling it Earth Camp Village. So these are meant to be very small, tiny homes, you will, if you will. They're not meant to be year-round. They probably could be, but they're really meant to be for short-term use. But we're going to show different building techniques. And we're sitting on an ocean of clay, 18 inches below my feet. Uh, clay begins, and it goes, we don't know how deep, but we're talking 30, 40, 50, 60 feet of clay. So, um, so that's our building material. Whereas, like at uh, Cal Earth in Hesperia, California, they're ninety-seven percent sand. So, guess what? Super Adobe is made out of sand. Well, we we don't have sand, so we have clay. So, with clay, we can build what's uh, cl- uh, clay slip, which is basically wet straw with clay, and you pack it in really tight. You can build with cob, and you can build with clay brick, which is air dried or fired. So we're going to use those three techniques and build uh, probably uh, seven dwellings and uh, a common building and a, and a shower house. So it'll be nine structures in, in total. And if I'm correct, those dwellings, uh, if they stay dry and they're built right, they can stand strongly for hundreds? Hundreds of years, yes. So you have to keep what we call it a natural building. You have to have dry feet and a big hat. So you extend the roof line so you, the side walls don't get... Pe- uh, hammered with water uh, when it's raining hard for day after day, and um, the the structure itself is built up so that water drains away and it's on a foundation there where water doesn't wick up. So you have a stem wall usually made out of stone where water doesn't wick up into the building, and you do that and you build it strong. It'll be it'll be there in 300 years. 
So that's the, the that's the goal of building the structures. And uh, and but the thing is, is when they're done and they're finished. I mean, you know, you put an earth plaster on there. Uh, you actually could have an earthen floor, but you put linseed oil on. When it's done, I mean, it literally looks like it could be out of Better Homes and Garden. It's going to be gorgeous, and you wouldn't know that it was made out of mud. You just wouldn't know that. It'll be beautiful. And if you compare those earth structures with the kind of like flimsy drywall condo buildings that uh, city dwellers are asked to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for, I mean, they feel like they could be blown over. And Yes. Yeah. That's, I, I, I experienced that too. I just step into that building and it just feels so solid, so permanent, so secure. And uh, it, it wouldn't matter how how what kind of a storm was raging outside, you know. Except even actually, the the thing is designed so that um, even if a tornado was to hit this thing, it probably will stand. And uh, if it doesn't stand, uh, there'll be a little security hatch underneath where a person can, you know, like a little mini room underneath, uh, a little like a little basement space. Uh, where we, where it's a root cellar basically inside the house. So in the event of a of a really bad wind, a person can literally just drop down into that, and they'll be protected from even a tornado. All right. So after I've taken this course, I now have this amazing design toolbox where I can just uh, pull out all these different resources and make something beautiful. Um, but how do I unpack it? Like I've got the toolbox, but it's like. It's really full of tools. So how do I? Where do I start? How do you get from Maria to a place that you would like to be? And um, and that takes time to to sort that out. And it's not just you. You've got a partner and you've got children. And you know, I mean, that's been my struggle too. Is um, you know, I can't just walk away. Although I've done a little bit of that, I've been able to walk away a couple of times. But um, once Becky and I got together, you just I realized that walking away was just uh, not an option anymore. So. How do I co-create something with her? So we live at we, you know, our house in Stell is is pretty modest, and um, but it's very secure. I and mean, we've invested in it so that it's very easy to insulate, to heat, and to cool. And um, and we're developing, you know, this, you know, we've got a, you know, a hundred different edible species of plants surrounding our house now. So we're s- slowly developing this you know, pretty high level of security around our own home. And uh, it's a great base to teach from as well. So, I mean, you were able to be here and actually see it. So you get a feel for it as well and can see how it's evolving. It must feel really great to have created such security around you through the food that you grow, through your family bonds, through your teaching that you You do. We're in our our 60s, and so you kind of realize, well, gosh, you know, yeah, you might as well have created something. But I do know that, you know, I, I have friends that are in their, you know, my age, and, and um, what they have to look to is the fact that uh, they've got a house uh, and the mortgage is paid off, and uh, and their their life as they get into retirement is about, well, we're going to go visit the kids and then go play golf and then uh, go on a cruise and you know it's it's um, it's 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 uh, it's like how do we fill the space now? How do we fill the time? And how do we not lose everything? I mean, now they're always in this protective mode of we've got these assets. Now how do we not lose it all by one of us getting sick or something like that? So this insurance thing becomes this thing over their heads where they, oh, my God, we got to have insurance. And, and we did talk about um, Amish culture a few times. And um, from what I understand, the Amish don't actually believe in in. Uh, health insurance is that right? Yeah, it's something that we created, and um, and unfortunately, uh, I mean, the, the basic concept. I mean, they have insurance. It's called neighbors, 
you know, and a house burns down or blows over and everybody, right, and everybody gets together and, well, I'll just build another one. That's kind of security, you know, and if somebody gets sick, you know, now you want to go to Western medicine and say, oh, well, we can fix that, but you're going to need $250,000. You know, an Amish person might say, well, you know what, maybe it's not worth fixing. Or maybe, you know, I'll just go ahead and uh, change my diet and maybe it'll go away. And if it doesn't, I've had a good life. Uh, but uh, that is almost unacceptable to uh, Western thinking. It's like, oh, no, no, if you're sick, you have to take everything you've worked for your whole life and give it to this institution that basically is blackmailing you. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and not to mention the fact that, you know, people are becoming diseased, you know, many times because they're living through the effects of being in a corporate toxic environment that you know the bottom line is not health the bottom line is something very more much more sinister yeah oh god that don't that don't even go there you are such a dark theorist but yeah no one corporation is there to get you sick and the next one is uh, there to you know take your money when you need to get get better well that's a pretty dark side of looking at our culture but um unfortunately we we talked about these invisible structures and we talked about the nature of institutions and uh institutions get grow beyond their ability to be of service anymore they actually become a cancer they create an extracting pattern remember we talked about that in permaculture an extracting pattern just means every year every it just pulls the life out of anything it touches and we have a lot of institutions now that do that Pull the life out of the culture. Pull the life out of individuals. And um, and we feel powerless to stop it, but we're not. Uh, we just have to just choose not to. Becky and I don't have health insurance, you know. We just made the decision when I left the truck that uh, that came with the package. But we just said we're not going to spend $1,500, $2,000 a month on insurance for an industry for something that we don't even believe in. I mean, it's I don't even want to be healed by Western medicine if I get sick. I may be my knee, my naive, you know, let's, all right, we'll wait till next week when I get really sick or maybe uh, I'll be singing a different tune. But I doubt it. I got a feeling that, you know, I'll definitely go to, I'll go to food before I go to Western medicine. Yeah, food is your best medicine. That, that was a book that changed my life. I was 21 years old. Dr. Henry Beeler wrote it. It's called Food is Your Best Medicine. And it blew my mind. And then here's this guy coming along 20 years later, 25, 30 years later, Jordan Rubin writing the book, The Maker's Diet. And now I'm working with Jordan. So isn't that a, isn't that a hilarious little turn of events? Well, it was great to spend a week um, learning from you. And, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk a little bit more. Yeah, I feel sorry for the, I hope that whoever is listening to this uh, feels like they uh, have uh, gotten something from it. But uh, I've enjoyed visiting with you, Joe, and I'm I'm really delighted that you were able to make it down for the course. Uh, you know, when we, when we deliver these courses, we can see who's showing up and who the individuals are that are just perfectly ripe for this course, and you were one of those. Well, I like to tell people that uh, I went into the training thinking I w it was going to be a design course, and little did I know it was actually de redesigning my life is what I would get out of it. So, um, yeah, I guess it was the right right time for me. And, um, again, I really appreciate what you're doing and sharing your wisdom and your, and your life experience. And... Uh, Say hi to Becky for me. Hi, sure will, Joe. Have a good night. Take care. 
To hear more episodes featuring interviews with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement, and to read my essays on everything from zucchini to zen, visit dharmaonthefarm.com. Until next time, farm on.